Hello, my name is Dan Badger, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Words of Endearment with Bill Coker. We continue the series on Ezra and Nehemiah. This message on Nehemiah, chapters 3 and 4, was preached at World Gospel Church in March of 1996, titled, Ain't Nothing Easy. The words next to are repeated as names of the builders and their respective gates are listed. This was a cooperative venture, but not without opposition. These passages, here and beyond, show us how work can be accomplished while being oppressed by our enemies. Now let's hear from Bill. In the third and fourth chapters of Nehemiah, actually, we really need enough time to just include in that chapters five and six, but this morning, since I figured you wanted to have lunch, I wouldn't do that. Let me read you just uh, the beginning of chapter three and then chapter four. I want you to notice words there. Then Eliashiv, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And, and next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. And the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid, uh, they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, repaired. But their nobles did not put their necks to the work of the Lord. And then in the chapter 4, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he ridiculed the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brethren and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt upon their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are the captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their, thy sight. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But Judah said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing and there is so much rubbish. We are not able to work on the wall and 
Our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come into the midst of them and kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived by them came, they said to us ten times, from all the places where they live, they will come up against us. So on the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in its open, open places, I stationed the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind all the house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were laden in such a way that each one's with one hand, each labored on the work, and with the other held his weapon. And each of the builders had his sword girded at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn till the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his hand. One of the great memories I have growing up is the fact that I grew up on aphorisms. My mother always had some kind of neat little thing that she wanted me to learn. I remember one that she said over and over again, if it's worth having, it's worth working for. Or another one, if it's worth being done, it's worth being done well. I cut my teeth on those things. Maybe that's why no one would be surprised that when I became a pref professor of Bible courses in college, one of my syllabuses carried one of my syllabi. I did teach college. One of my syllabi carried uh, a little thing right on the front page. It was a prayer. Thou, O God, dost sell us all good things at the price of labor. But I have to confess that probably my favorite of all of these with regard to the idea of work is the old country gentleman who looked at me one day and said, ain't nothing easy. Ain't nothing easy. Maybe that's why I'm so skeptical of all of these things that claim that you can do things so easily. I was driving down the road the other day and they had an advertisement on and if you'll send away for it, they'll send you a tape and all you have to do is listen to it and then you can sit down and play the same song on the piano. It's really that easy. Is that right, Mimi? 
No, it doesn't come that way. Ain't nothing easy. I wonder, did Nehemiah's mother prepare him for this <laughs> by giving him all of these neat little ideas, these neat little slogans? Did he learn somewhere along the line that there ain't nothing easy and that it's only going to come by hard work? When you turn to chapters 4 through 6 in Nehemiah, I want to tell you we're entering into what today is called spiritual warfare. We're entering into the fact that when Nehemiah dared to take the task to hand to do what he felt God had called him to do, he found that it wasn't easy and he found also that he had to meet the opposition that would stand against him. J.I. Packer, on his, in his book on Nehemiah, makes mention of the fact that behind all human opposition lies Satan's promptings and whatever opposes obedience to God and paralyzes our efforts reflects his activity. Nehemiah came face to face with the fact that though his ideal was a good one and though what he was attempting to do was well worth being done, it was not going to happen easily. It was going to take a lot out of him. It was going to take a lot out of the people. So in these chapters, which we'll, uh, and we'll only look at a couple of them this morning, Nehemiah has to confront the opposition that is there before him. And he has to make some decisions as to how he's going to meet these various things. Now, if we had the time, we could go through all of these chapters, 4, 5, and 6, and pull together any number of things that were used to thwart the work of rebuilding the walls. But I want to suggest to you that these things are not just simply applicable or were not just applicable in Nehemiah's day. They're still true today. And people who would dare to do God's work will be confronted by this kind of opposition. Maybe it will take a different kind of tact. Maybe it will come in a different kind of way. And yet it's going to be there and we're going to confront it. Look, for example, here in chapter 4, and notice, even back into chapter 3, the assaults against the morale of the people to keep them from really going on and doing the work that needed to be done. Oh, Sanballat was no fool, neither was Tobiah. They understood that one of the easiest ways to subvert the work that people are doing is just to simply bring ridicule and insult against them. Attack their morale. If you can destroy morale, you can defeat them. And so they set out to do it. And they brought all of these statements that we read about. But notice the attitude of, of Sanballat and Tobiah. Nehemiah says that they were very angry. And they plotted together and they wanted to fight against Jerusalem. They wanted to cause confusion within it. So how did they do it? They came on and they began to attack the people's mood. How can they possibly accomplish this kind of a task. Now notice the questions that, that Sanballat asked. I, I really think that these are the same kinds of things that people face in every generation. What are these feeble Jews doing? Oh, that sounds like a perfectly simple question, but it's more than that. Of course, because there's something implied in this. 
The word feeble gives you the idea. What he's saying in essence is, don't they really realize that they can't do this job? Don't they realize that the job is bigger than they can handle? Don't they understand that if they attack this business of building up a wall, they're never going to get the job done because they don't have the power to do it? These are feeble Jews. They can't possibly make any kind of difference. Oh, we hear that all the time, don't we? We're reminded on every hand that we Christians are just simply sort of pie-in-the-sky people. We're not really able to address the problems that confront our generation, our age. It takes the secular wisdom of the well-trained. Of course, we never stop to look at what the secular wisdom of the well-trained has produced. So why do we think it's going to solve the problem? So Sanballat stands by, and the people hear them, and they understand what Sanballat and Tobiah are saying. Do they really think they can do it, so feeble as they are? Look at the second question. Will they restore these things? Don't they understand what a tremendous job this is? Picture it in your mind. Here's the city of Jerusalem destroyed, the Temple Mount devastated, and here's this long wall running up the side of the Kidron Valley and around on the north side and back down on the western side and down on the edge of the valley of, of the Cheesemakers, the Tarapuian Valley, right down there to the point at Hinnom. And, and it's a long job. It's a big job. How in the world will they ever get a job like this done? Don't they understand the job is too big? We hear that, don't we? Sometimes it's not the secularists who are asking the question, it's we ourselves who are asking. Look at the plight the world is in today. Man, the whole thing is going downhill at a terrible speed. And how in the world can a few Christians gathered in churches stop the downhill moral slide of people in our nation? And let me tell you, many people are sitting back saying to themselves, the job is really too big. There's not anything that we can do to stop it. Had we only stopped it back then, before it began, before it picked up steam and began to really run downhill, had we only done what was right then, we could have changed it. How many times have I said to myself, why in the world didn't our forebears realize that the, the people whom they had brought to this nation and enslaved, when they turned them loose, they needed to educate them, they needed to bring them into society, they needed to do those things which were right, and they didn't do it. And often I've stood and said, oh, if we could just go back and rewrite the last 125 or so years of history, we could correct all of this. We could make it different. But now with racial tensions running as they are, how in the world are we going to correct it all? I like to watch the basketball games, at least when it gets down to this point. I enjoy a good game. But you know what disturbs me? What disturbs me is to see a young, good-looking black boy get up to the line to shoot a shot. And they call his name Kareem. 
or Abdullah. Those aren't just names. Those are a testimony against the failure of the church in America. The job is too big. How are we ever going to turn around all of the hostility and the animosity within our nation? How are we going to stop the slide? That's what Sanballat and Tobiah were saying. How can they rebuild the wall? Don't they understand it's bigger than they can handle? And look at this other question. Do they think that they can finish it up in a day? Don't they realize it's going to take too long to get it done? If it's going to take that long to do it, why start it? I mean, after all, how can they give so much time to the building of the wall? They might as well accept everything as it is. If it's going to take five years or 10 years or 20 years, then there's no use beginning it. And how many times has the church faced an opportunity and seen the privilege that God has given to them and said to themselves, but we can't get this thing done in a day or so. It's going to take years to get it done. And if it's going to take years to get it done, then why start? That's what Sanballat was saying. Why start? The job is too big. There's more there than we can handle. Don't they realize that they're so few and they're so feeble and it's going to take so much time? And besides all of that, look, the only thing that's around them is burned stones and everybody knows that burned stones will never be able to support the weight of that wall. It'll crumble. And Tobiah laughs and says, <laughs> don't they realize that even a little fox running up on that wall, it'll fall down with those burned stones. Don't they know they haven't got the resources? And besides, even if they build it, it's not going to last. Oh, it'll be here for a day or so, and after that, it's going to face the same kind of problems that the walls in the past have faced. They'll come tumbling down, too. Now, all of that sounds like just sort of poor ribbing and ridicule. But it was more than that. It was an assault against the morale of the people. And I call your attention again to what J.I. Packer said. Anytime there comes opposition to the work of God, you can believe that behind it lies the work of Satan. Evil certainly stands against following the will of God. So we look at these things and we think to ourselves, well, you know, this is just simply some of the things they had to contend with. But it's more than that. It was assault against their character. It was assault against their morale. It was an assault against them as a people. It was saying to them, you have failed. Accept your failure. Remain in your failure. Don't try to get out of it. And that's what we've been talking about now for a couple of months. How do we get up when we failed? How do we rise up again and stand on our feet and overcome the fact of our failure personally? How can we do it collectively as the body of Christ? Is there any way that we really can triumph? 
Well, let me say, I start with this one just as Sam Ballot started at this point because I know that morale is essential. The victory of the people really lies in their heart. It doesn't lie out there in their resources. It doesn't lie really in the length of time to work. It takes more than that. It takes heart to be able to do it. And so Sam Ballot hit right at the place which was the most crucial. If the people lose heart, They'll never do what God wants them to do because victory is in the heart. And later when you read in the sixth verse where it says the people had a mind to work, the Hebrew word there is the word lave, heart. The people had a heart to work. It was there in their minds. It was there in their hearts. It was there in their souls. They were going to do what needed to be done so that they could glorify their God and His will could be done in their city. And may I say just in passing that sometimes we spend so much time inventorying the wrong thing we're looking at what are our resources and what can we do and let's measure our strength, let's count our heads, let's see how in the world we can do this thing that needs to be done. But listen, victory lies not in our resources, but it lies in our resolution. It lies not in what we have. It, it lies in the resiliency of God's people through the grace and the power of God working within them. Little is much when God is in it, sang the gospel songwriter. And it's true. Little is much when God is in it. And when you have the will to win, it's not really peculiar that you should do it. When you believe in yourself, when you believe in the power of God to be able to take even the smallest measure of things and do something glorious, then you have the will to win. And when you have the will to win, you discover that God gives the power to win. Oh, don't make any mistake about it. It wasn't just simply that they were sort of working up the spirit within themselves apart from God, along with the, the victory in their own hearts. There needed to be also victory in prayer. We can't separate God from what's happening. We've got to believe that God is involved in it. And if he isn't involved in it, then it doesn't make any difference. We're not going to accomplish what God wants us to do. In the six and a half years that I've been pastoring this church, I've been looking and asking, God, where do you want us? How can we minister to people? What is the task that you want us to do? Our deacons and elders have responded. They've looked for some kind of a master plan, not so that we can build some kind of a beautiful monument to our faith or even a monument in the name of Jesus, but that we might do the work that needs to be done. And when the Futures Committee was meeting and they were talking about what can be and what, uh, what's possible by the grace of God, they were asking also, what does the Lord want us to do? What does he want us to be? I want to tell us this morning as we look at all of this, it lies not in us to do it. It lies in the power of our God. And if we are praying, and if we are willing to be used, and if in our hearts there is the sense that God is not defeated, He can, He will, and He does work through His people. I think you see things happen. 
But they were attacking the people of Israel right at the place where they knew they would be the weakest. They had been defeated. They were knocked down even if they weren't knocked out to borrow Paul's words. They were wondering to themselves, we've been so utterly destroyed. How can we ever get up and go again? I want to say it again for some of you who may be struggling within yourself. You never come to the point where God cannot touch your life and work within you something new and fresh and make you more than you have ever been before in your life. Not because of the failure, but through the failure. He's able more than able, as the song says, if we let him work. So it's not strange to hear Nehemiah falling on his knees and saying, Hear, O our God, for we're despised. Turn back their taunts upon their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they're the captives. Don't cover up their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, for they have provoked thee from, to anger before the builders. You know, it's interesting, Christian commentators really struggle with that prayer. We understand why. How different than the prayer of Jesus, hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And as we read the prayers like this in the Old Testament and the imprecatory Psalms, we under, how, wonder, how can there be such vindictiveness in the minds of these people? Don't they understand that they need to care for and pray for these people and not just simply give voice to vindictiveness? Of course, we know that we're not beyond that ourselves. I'm always amazed at the depth of feeling that can reside within my heart. I'm, almost, I'm always amazed to see the kinds of things that can erupt if God is not in charge. Oh, make no mistake about it. We're be, even though we live in New Testament days, we're no exceptions. How easy for us, and we do it sometimes, how easy for us to give vent to such feelings and say, oh, God, smash them. Oh, God, just take these vile people, and, and, and these drug sellers, and just simply... Well, we almost lose words, don't we? We forget that Jesus died for their sins. We forget... And within ourselves, there is the same possibility for sin as lies even in the greatest sinner. Well, maybe Nehemiah shouldn't have prayed this way. Maybe he should have had the compassion of Christ. That certainly was not unheard of in the Old Testament. But you know, when I read these words, there's something that responds inside of me to them because it says at least that Nehemiah cares enough. He's got enough passion within his soul that when he looks at the job to be done, he becomes deeply disturbed when there are these people who would interfere with it. Maybe we don't feel that deeply because we're not as compassionate. Maybe we don't have the passion of God for the work that needs to be done. 
Maybe we can let it slide so easily because we lack what I call that spiritual spitherinkdom within us to really get stirred up about something and say enough is enough. I pray that in the Christian church in America, we may really get that angry, that deeply disturbed, not tempted to call for the vindictiveness of God against the heads of the, of the sinners, but to pray that God would somehow stir up our hearts deeply enough that we might be concerned enough to make a difference. I'm reading a novel right now. Al Jackson, some of you know Al Jackson, wrote me a letter not long ago and said, man, you need to read Susan Holwatch. She's writing a group of novels about life in the Anglican church back in the 30s and 40s. So when I passed through the Atlanta airport a couple of weeks ago, I went to the bookstore and I found uh, Susan Holwatch. Picked up a book, Glittering Images. I'm going to tell you, it's a disturbing thing. It's a good novel, but it's a disturbing thing. And what's so disturbing about it is that the whole essence of the title is simply this, that so many of us are concerned about the glittering images, the things that appear on the outside, while on the inside there is a depth of desperate spiritual need that remains unaddressed. And when the morale of people is assaulted, that's where the cave-in comes those inner areas where we so desperately need God to work. Oh, I want to say to you this morning, God, God move in our hearts to stir up our minds and our wills for what he wants to do. But there weren't just simply assaults against them morale. There were also assaults against them physically and personally. So Sanballat and Tobiah said, let's get an army together. If we can't smash them one way, we'll smash them another way. If we can't really just simply so assault them around that they stop building, then we'll bring forces against them and we'll, we'll bring an army and we'll wipe these guys out. And don't think for a moment that through the centuries, Christians have not had to pay the price of following Christ sometimes in very desperate ways. Have you ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Well, look at it sometime. Not that thick. It's just a story of people who died in pursuing the will of God in their lives. Sometimes it comes to that. And Nehemiah knew that that's where the people could be hit. And so he began to make all of those preparations so that they could, they could defend themselves and not be defeated. And you know, this thing hits us hard today. While it's true that I don't get death threats delivered to my mailbox every day and you don't get death threats given to you on your job, yet in so many different ways we're made to realize that unless we're willing to toe the line, it can cost us our security. It can cost us our financial security. It can, it can cost us our social security with our families. It can cost us in so many different ways. 
How many times have we walked away from what we know God wants us to do simply because it may cost us? So Nehemiah said, let's defend ourselves. I like this guy. I like this guy. You know, he didn't roll over and just say, let's have a prayer meeting. He said, okay, guys, get the swords. Sometimes it comes to the place where we have to defend ourselves. Sometimes having enough spiritual spizzerinctum means that we're not going to just simply roll over and play dead before the world, but we're going to stand up on our feet and we're going to pay the price that has to be paid and we're going to do the job that needs to be done, whatever it may cost us. Oh, dear friends, that's so true, not just simply of us as people, it's so true of us personally. There may be some of you sitting here this morning that you really have not done what you know God wants you to do because you're afraid. You're afraid of what it's going to demand. You're afraid of the price you may have to pay. I don't subscribe to the idea that we don't understand all about God and therefore we can't believe in him. I subscribe to the idea that we, need, we know all we need to know about him. The problem lies within our own fear to follow him. It isn't that we don't know what to do. It is that we're unwilling to do what needs to be done personally and as a people. Well, they weren't through with them. They were coming at them another way, and it worked almost. And that was the personal discouragement that was created within the people. I used to read Pogo. I'm a great comic strip fan. Many of you know that. I still am in mourning for Calvin and Hobbes. almost given up on the comic strips in Terre Haute. I miss Calvin and Hobbes, but you know I'll live because I miss Pogo the same way. When Walt Kelly laid his pen aside and Pogo no longer was reproduced, some of his words continue to live in my own mind. I love that phrase that says, we have met the enemy and he is us. We've met the enemy. He's us. There isn't enough power out in the world to stop the juggernaut of God's Holy Spirit. There isn't enough power in the world to smash the church out of existence. There isn't enough power in Terre Haute to keep the gospel under wraps and under covers and out of, out of sight. There isn't enough anything anywhere to stop the work of God unless we ourselves prove to be the enemy. Haven't got the time to do it. But would you read this chapter again and notice in chapter 3 and 4 there are several things. There was pride. Yeah, the nobles of Tekoa who wouldn't bend their neck to do the work, too proud to do it. Churches have people like that. We're willing to let everybody else do it except ourselves. We're too proud to dirty our hands in the task. 
Too much pride to claim on, climb on a moor and run it over the grass? We don't bend our necks to the world? That can happen here, the same as it happened back there. And also, too, look at the fatigue that begins to catch up with these people. Our strength is giving out. There's so much rubble we need to deal with. And then there was the intimidation of the enemy that's too strong. And inside, they became the enemy to themselves. Well, I had a very simple message to you this morning, and I have to admit it... it uh, it digs very deeply in our hearts. Because you see, the bottom line really to what we do and what we are doesn't lie out there with the Tobias and the Sanballats and the Geshem and the Arabs. It really lies within ourselves. I look at people whose lives are defeated personally, spiritually, and I think sometimes, why can't we allow God to make us into new people? And I look at the church in America, and I see all that has divided it, and all that has almost destroyed it. And I think, it doesn't have to be that way. We can't change all of those churches out there, but by God's grace, we can change this one. We can change this one if we have a mind to do it. But I want to tell you, the old guy was right. Ain't nothing easy. Ain't nothing easy, and it won't be for us. Lord Jesus, We don't have a wall to build, not like Nehemiah's wall. We don't have a city to rebuild and a temple to reconstruct. We have a lovely sanctuary and we live in beautiful homes. But you've given us a tremendous task in our day, and while we may sometimes feel like saying, it's a terrible day to be alive, this morning we want to say, I want to say for us that it is a great time to be alive. Because it's a great time to meet the challenge of reaching out into a desperate world with the grand good news that Jesus Christ is alive, that he rose from the dead, having sacrificed himself for our redemption. He rose from the dead and he is alive and he's working in people's lives through his Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray this morning that the person among us who really feels defeated, personally defeated, who feels like he or she has failed, 
and can't get up again. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just simply say that while it may be true that there ain't nothing easy, all things are possible to those who believe. Because our God is at work in us and among us for good as he works in all who love him and are called to his purposes. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would really encourage us against those defeatist attitudes that assault our morale as church people, as Christians, against all of the inferences of Satan that we're not strong enough, we don't have enough resources, we don't have this, we don't have that, but all the time we've got the greatest thing in all of the world. We have a great and awesome God who can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that we allow to work within us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we will be by your grace, the people whom you can use to do the great work, to finish the wall, as it were, and to be used to turn our nation toward righteousness. We pray in your name. Thank you for listening. Please send any comments to Bill and Ann by email. Their email address is in the show notes, along with information about Bill's books. We hope this time has been a blessing for you. Please feel free to share with your friends and family. We encourage you to click the subscribe button on the site where you listen to these podcasts. Tune in next week for another message on words of endearment with Bill Coker.